Welcome to the Hamiltonian Podcast, where we seek to explore various perspectives from top experts, journalists, practitioners, politicians, and academics on the top foreign policy issues facing America today. I'm Gabe Scheinman, the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Welcome, everybody. My name is Gabe Scheinman. I'm the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Thanks for joining us today. It is a great pleasure today to welcome a friend and a real expert on a historical but actually very relevant topic given what's going on today in Iran, and that is Dr. Brenda Schaefer to talk about her new book, Iran is More Than Persia, Ethnic Politics in Iran. Dr. Schaefer is an international energy and foreign policy specialist focusing on politics and energy and the Caspian region in particular, energy security policies, European energy security, ethnic politics in Iran, which will be the topic of today's conversation, and Eastern Mediterranean energy. She is also a faculty member at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School and a senior advisor for energy at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, as well as a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center here in Washington, D.C. Her recently published book, I think, is particularly apt given the wave of protests that we have seen ongoing, actually, but that we have seen in Iran over the last couple months. And I think giving us an opportunity to do a more historical dive as to how should we understand what's going on. And then hopefully, I think, Brenda, bring it back to some of the current current. I guess. I think that'll be really great. So Brenda, thanks for joining us. Really happy to have you here. Sure. My pleasure. So I don't typically like to just start with the title of a book because it makes it seem like I haven't read the book, but I actually have read the book. and It's really informative and great. But I actually think the title of the book really summarizes the first couple chapters, which is we outsiders typically think of Iran as this monolithic Shiite Persian country embattled against some of the Sunni Arab countries to its south and its west. But that might be a little bit of a false or at least superficial understanding. So maybe if you can just start it off, give us a little bit of an overview over what is the ethno and religious makeup of today's Iran. Break it down for us by size, maybe by region a little bit, just so we can kind of understand. Because I think one of the primary purposes that you have here in your work is to try and get readers to have just a different founding framework for how to look at this in the first place. So, Gabe, it seems like you really got the main thesis of the book. So often we talk about Iran, the Persians, um, sort of interchangeably. Like in the past, often policymakers did it about, you know, the Russians when they were referring to the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union broke up, suddenly we discovered, well, there's Chechens, Uzbeks, Armenians, Lithuanians. And now it's very clear to everyone that, you know, the ethnic element is very important in, you know, let's say the politics in the post-Soviet space. But we might have the same blind spot about Iran. So the same thing, people refer to Persian food, Persian music, Persian movies. And despite the fact that Iran itself is over half ethnic minorities. And in fact, the major ethnic group, the largest ethnic group in Iran, the Persians are even less than 40% of the population of Iran. According to internal Iranian data that I used extensively throughout the book, 40% of Iranians consider themselves not fluent in Persian. I mean, this is a strong indication that clearly they're not ethnic Persians because, you know, probably people would be fluent in their own language. But this indicates clearly the number is much higher because, of course, some of the members of the minority groups are fluent in the language. There's also a geographic element to the ethnic minorities in, in Iran. So 
Most of the center of the country, Tehran and the major central cities, they have a strong Persian majority, but all the bordering provinces of Iran have strong ethnic minority populations. And so that basically also affects all of Iran's foreign policy because all these groups also share co-ethnics in neighboring states. So if it's the Kurds, they share, you know, co-ethnics in Iraq, in Turkey and other small communities. If it's the Azerbaijanis, Republic of Azerbaijan, if Turkmen, you know, Republic of Turkmenistan, the Baluch share t- strong ties with Pakistan. The Arabs have co-ethnics mainly in Iraq. So Iran's ethnic challenge also has a foreign policy dimension. So why do we, I mean, I admit I do it myself, I will interchangeably use Persia and Iran or Iranian and Persian. Is this just a facile or lazy way to do it? Or is something changed recently? Or is this something that whether it's the current regime or even the Shah beforehand, that's actually something they wanted people to think in that way? Yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, I think some of it, you know, up until the 20th century, you know, in most British works on, you know, Iran as a country was referred to as Persia. And so I think, you know, I think it's for many for historians, it got into their, you know, mindset. Some of it, I think many Iranian Americans say that they're Persians, instead of saying that they're Iranians, maybe because of the hostility in the U.S. to the regime. So maybe it's more convenient and maybe they are ethnically Persian. And so they feel more, you know, comfortable with that definition. For some, you know, I'm always finding that there is this sort of laziness sometimes that, you know, I always find that many people in the U.S. refer, for instance, to the Azerbaijanis, which are the biggest minority group in Iran as the Azeris. I don't know, you know, like, like it seems sort of like a shorthand, you know, versus the proper name of the group. So yeah, probably a combination. But even Iran itself, up until the 20th century with the establishment of the Shah regime by the father of the Shah that's well known to, you know, let's say to most people of our generation by establishment by Reza Shah, up until that point, Iran was actually, well, all the empires that ruled there were ethno-Iranian. I mean, they were a combination, mainly like the language of the court and the military is primarily Turkish, not this, exactly the same Turkish as Turkey, but very close. And the language of culture was Persian. And they really coincided in Iran only with the establishment of the Shah regime or Shah dynasty. Um, was there an attempt to really have a purely Persianized regime and ideology? So have the demographics been shifting at all? I mean, we typically look at a lot of other countries and often it is the minorities <laughs> who actually have higher birth rates and so forth because there's economic dimensions to majority minority rule and things like that. Yeah. But is the makeup that you just kind of the percentage breakdown, let's say that you just gave us, that's a snapshot in time. But, you know, what was it 20 years ago? Where did demographers see this going a generation from now? Right. Yeah. So, and luckily, actually, in the book, I was able to find original data from exactly as you're saying from different periods and to show this progression. So, in 1949, the Iranian military did a really, really interesting survey of basically almost every town and large village and city in Iran and looked at the ethnic composition. They mainly went on primary language. And an interesting thing is that this book, even it counted Tehran as 100% Persian, even though it wasn't because they said, okay, but these minorities know the Persian language. So there's sort of an assumption of an assimilation. So even a study then that sort of pivoted towards more Persians, put the Persians at less than 50%. So that was in 1949. And and studies in Iranian data from the Ministry of Culture from about 10 years ago, put the Persians in a sort of 
43, 44%. Now to 37%, I think it is connected to the fact that the Persians are mostly urban and they have a lot lower birth rates than the ethnic minorities, which tend, you know, if you look at, you don't see it in the Iranian data breakdown by language or ethnicity, but you do see it by rural versus urban. And the rural households have grown, you know, by survey to survey. So I think, yes, there is a larger families among the ethnic minorities that tend to live in villages and, you know, engage in agriculture. And two follow-ups on that. I mean, you mentioned that some of these surveys is data drawn on actually on what languages people speak, which is asking a different type of question, but what languages do people speak? I mean, have these non-Persian populations, are they speaking what we might call Farsi? Are they maintaining their own language? Is there a generational divide? And the follow-up to that is if you ask them what their identity is, how would they describe it? I mean, or do they say, I'm an Iranian Azerbaijani or an Iranian Kurd, or will they say even Persian themselves because there is a drive, let's say, from the government to try and kind of adopt this identity? Right. I would take your set of questions. Also say, also has this changed over time? So, um, you know, first thing that the Iranian regime, the Islamic Republic and the Shah before it doesn't allow ethnic minorities to study their native languages in their schools, not even as, you know, two hours a day, you know, three hours a day, like let's say that there's no wiggle room on this. Like there's not any, you know, any room and they can't use their language in any government form. So if you're, you know, arrested, the police are going to interrogate you in Persian. And if, you know, there's been cases, especially of women really didn't have any basic knowledge in Persian, you know, had to sign you know, that they, you know, confessing certain crimes of this, that I can't even read the document, you know, that it's written. And, and also the situation that ethnic minorities can't study in their own language also leads to, you know, sort of lower competency rates in schools, higher challenges in occupations. I'm, I'm curious, um, can they pray in their own language or is that also forbidden? Because I feel like that is also often an element where governments try and impose their views. Yeah, on well, I mean, I guess because traditional Muslims pray in Arabic. So actually, in Iran, they do study Arabic in schools. It's compulsory, but they study, you know, as you probably know, that Quranic Arabic or written Arabic is much different than spoken Arabic. And so even the Arabs in Iran, which are an important minority that live in Iran's oil producing region in Khuzestan, mainly they're not allowed to study in their schools modern Arabic. So like everyone studies Quranic Arabic, but not modern Arabic. And in fact, even the Iranian government doesn't allow the minorities to register the ethnic names of their children. So even Arabic names that aren't explicitly Islamic, you know, religious names, but more, let's say, modern names, they're, they're not allowed to use even Arabic, right? The language of the Quran. It actually, by the way, in the current demonstrations now, you know, the symbol of the demonstrations is a young Kurdish woman, Masha Amani, but her name isn't even Masha. That's her, her name and her identity card. You know, that's her official name, but her parents were never allowed to register her Kurdish name. So I, I sometimes think there's something kind of, you know, on one hand, it's sort of bittersweet in a sense. It's one hand, it's nice that people from different groups and different regions are memorializing this Kurdish woman. On the other hand, there's something kind of sad about it that it's not even her real name. You know, that's um, so the language issue is complicated because it's, you know, enforced Persian. And in some ways, if you look, yeah, you asked over time and over age groups. So younger people, again, from Iranian government internal data, younger people do report a higher proficiency in Persian than the older generation. Generations. I mean, you see a really clear increase in self-definition of proficiency in Persian. And even you see it in the demonstrations here where people are sort of, a lot of it's happening in both languages. Do you that think also, that they are responding to those 
government surveys truthfully or that they are scared or you know see downsides let's say to answering some of the questions based on what languages do you know and speak and you know etc right well you know for, yeah first thing all the surveys are conducted in persian so there's already some kind of element of you know people that really don't speak Persian aren't even going to answer the government surveys. I'm sure in general, when it's a government survey in a non-democratic country, obviously there's a lot of limitations on how people are going to answer the survey. But also what was interesting on this specific question that ethnic minorities that live in Persian majority areas, like let's say Tehran, there was a high percentage of people that didn't answer the question on your language proficiency versus people that live in the provinces. So some guy, you know, living in Erdebel, Tabriz, he doesn't mind saying, yeah, I don't know Persian. I'm not very good at it. But a guy living in Tehran was kind of embarrassed, you know, that so there was really high percentage that didn't answer that question. So I think that tells you something as well. You know, they're probably not fluent as well. So does language exactly translate, you know, to and from identity? And we can go back to the Soviet example, where people that were functionally, you know, their primary language was Russian. And I, you know, I remember a place like Kazakhstan, people thought, oh my God, they're so Russified. They don't even know their language. And you come back now, I was recently in Kazakhstan, people, the most highly educated global people were actually going back to speaking Kazakh. They were asking their parents to speak Kazakh with their children. Azerbaijan's an example, Georgia, where, you know, completely people went from Russian being used very, in almost all settings, you know, to a place where they went back to their, what was often defined as sort of kitchen languages, you know, what they would talk with their grandparents or parents about foods or sort of small talk, but not use it in any functional way, primarily. So it's hard to know. I mean, think about it also, we, technology really influences what's going to happen to ethnic minorities all over the world. Think about all sorts. I think I saw recently, for instance, Facebook groups of Cherkessians. So, you know, so they're a small minority, you know, the largest populations in the Russian North Caucasus. There's a big community in Turkey. There's a community in Israel and Jordan, Australia, right? And seeing like this group, thanks to Facebook, has been able to, you know, keep their identity, maybe arrange marriages within the community, you know, and, and keep continuity. So I think this is also technology has had a huge influence on identity trends in Iran. If we take, for instance, in the 1990s, when Turkish television started to be beamed in by satellite into Iran and the Azerbaijanis were about a third of the population of Iran started watching Turkish television. And I interviewed many young people that said, you know, they're used to in the Persian language TV and in Iranian TV, seeing the Turk is always, you know, the word they always use is Turkish hair, Turkish donkey, low man, uneducated, stupid guy, whatever. And suddenly they see Turkish television. They say, hey, these guys are wealthy. They're good looking. They're successful. Right. And it really created sort of a, uplifted their self image as Turks. So I think in the same thing, obviously, with social media, where people, if you look at even, for instance, many of these young women who were killed, especially in the first round from Karaj, many of these young women were active on social media. And I look at, for instance, the social media of what, the second woman who was killed by the regime in these round of demonstrations. And all her social media was about love songs in Turkish and Turkish singers that she liked, you know, so obviously, maybe her primary language functionally was Persian, but maybe her emotional language was Turkish or Azerbaijani Turkish. You know, I think a lot of us know this. I mean, how about, you know, people who in Eastern Europe, 
in the mid to 19th century, you know, maybe at home we're speaking Yiddish or Russian, but they learned Hebrew, which was a dead language, and then, you know, moved to Israel and resurrected this dead language. So, you know, I think it's always very dynamic and language proficiency and language sort of emotion toward the language isn't the same thing. So let's talk, you mentioned, you referred to it a little earlier, let's talk about the politics of some of this a little bit, in particular how the Islamic Republic, both when it came to be, you know, 40 plus years ago, as well as today, which is, you know, we in the West and the outside see this regime, obviously, as a theocratic regime. It's a regime that, even though it has not been super successful with it, espouses to, you know, bring revolution across the Muslim world and all these things. But at the end of the day, what your book shows is also a nationalist regime and a certain particular type of nationalism at the same time. And so how does the regime sort of try and do outreach and or control some of these minority populations within its own border, given that it is, on the one hand, there might be another identity card, let's say, that you could use. I mean, Turkey, you gave is a good example where for a very long time, the current president, Turkey Erdogan, actually had a lot of outreach to some of its Kurdish populations through that, let's say, Islamist lens. And whenever he retreated back into the sort of Turkish nationalist lens, those relationships sort of fell apart. So how has the regime actually tried to uh, approach that or navigate that? Right. So that's a great question. Well, so, you know, yeah, I think it, the beginning weeks or months of the Islamic revolution, there was an expectation, you know, after the Shah regime, you know, so much oppressed the minorities, oppressed their languages, killed anyone, you know, who was activist. There was actually, you know, relatively among the ethnic minorities, there was support and thought, okay, exactly under Islam, you know, there is no, you know, difference to ethnic groups. It's a universal religion, you know, maybe we'd have a chance. And actually even Khomeini's representatives offered the ethnic minorities, you know, to seduce them, I guess, to support the regime, you know, said that, yeah, we'll guarantee language rights, we'll have schools. And the minute it became apparent that they were lying and that they had no intention to offer these rights, you see a huge uprising. You know, it's one of the stories of the Islamic revolution that I think doesn't make it to all the history books, but how most of the provinces really rebelled against the Islamic Republic. It took the regime 10 years to subdue the Kurds, you know, really tens of thousands of Kurds were killed in in the process of establishing the Islamic revolution, you had an uprising for a year among the Turkmen. Again, like I think it rarely, you know, shows up in the history books, but the Turkmen basically, you know, they established, they formally, they called that they established an independent state. You know, they were trying to block the regimes, like when the Shah's forces retreated and they tried to block the Khomeini's forces from entering into the regions they populated. There was a whole true uprising in Tabriz with, you know, the air force involved and the communications tower that used to be important, you know, going back and forth, being handed between the Azerbaijanis that didn't want to go under the Islamic Republic and the forces of Khomeini. So they did think initially that they could get a better deal and more rights under an Islamic Republic. And I've interviewed people that have said that actually it's even more grotesque under an Islamic Republic when it has this racism. So, I mean, there's even things you probably noticed in the book, you know, I brought examples of Iranian textbooks where they talk about the ethnic minorities, you know, in elementary school for second graders, third graders, and show these images of the ethnic minorities as all savages and stupid. And, you know, we had every once in a while it pops up when there's like in a very sort of racist, you know, cartoon or something in the newspapers. We had this with the uh, cockroach in the issue in one of Iranian papers 
published a cartoon of a cockroach speaking out of his mouth. The language was, you know, Azerbaijani, Turkish language. And you know, in very few cultures, is the cockroach considered something, you know, nice or good? Or And this, you know, because people, I think it was symbolic to larger sort of oppression, you know, across mass demonstrations. I think a dozen people were killed over the days of these demonstrations before the regime resubdued the people. You have something similar with the Ahwaz Arabs when there was like a children's show about the ethnic mosaic of Iran, and they forgot to put an Arab doll, you know, on this children's show. I don't think they forgot, you know, it's probably done on purpose. Also, you know, demonstrations because people feel so humiliated. So when they get these sort of symbols of that humiliation, it's uh, mobilized. Now as the regime, you know, it's kind of similar to what Stalin did during World War II when he suddenly pulled the priests out of Siberia and, you know, and sort of resurrected the religion for a year or so to get people to mobilize to fight. You're seeing the regime more and more, you know, using explicitly Persian symbols or putting sort of a showcasing more Persian nationalist academics. By the way, throughout the Islamic Republic period, as you know, that Israel has always stood up that the Gulf should be called the Persian Gulf and not the Arab Gulf. And even when Saudi Arabia once suggested to Khomeini, why don't we call it the Muslim Gulf and stop all this fighting? He said, no, like Persian Gulf, like still, he was not even willing to give up to the uh, Muslim Gulf. But I think now, as the regime gets weaker and weaker, it's pulling out more and more Persian nationalism. And this actually is going to make it harder for it to keep power. And it's going to make harder for someone that comes after this regime if they use these sort of same Persian nationalism to keep Iran together. So I think I know the answer to this. It's a little bit of a trick question. But does that mean that the senior layers, let's say, of the regime, whether that's true in the military or the IRGC or whether that's mm-hmm. true in the jurisprudence council or whatnot, are they all predominantly Persian or have there been ways for some of these minorities to make their way through or hide their identity or adopt the identity that the regime wants to be able to get into positions of political power? Right. So there are examples, many examples of people from the ethnic minorities that rise high. Khamenei himself is probably from an ethnically mixed family. Shamkhani, who heads the National Security Council, is an ethnic Arab, right? But, you know, Stalin was Georgian, too. That didn't mean that he was particularly good to the Georgians or allowed, you know, Georgians to have any particular ethnic rights. So it does, on one hand, yes, if you're willing to assimilate, more or less, you can rise up. We see it with, you know, for instance, with appointment of governors, which was presented in the book. So I did a sort of a mini study of this. Still, most of the governors are either Persian or Lures, the Lure group, which the regime considers more reliable, sort of disproportionate number. But yeah, some of the governors around the country are Arab or there's one that's Kurd, uh, Azerbaijani. So it can happen. But I think there's sort of a separation between individual discrimination against people that work with the regime and, you know, speak Persian versus systemic discrimination against the languages and the culture. How does this work when it comes to some of the political opposition, both inside the country and the outside? I mean, in the book, you talk about how because of the emphasis placed on Persian identity by the regime, some of the opposition groups are actually a little wary of getting too much to play into that game and taking too much of a ethno lens to it in that way. But that obviously is an advantage to the regime because they're managed to keep things a lot of separate. So how does the opposition, various opposition groups, both official and unofficial and inside the country and outside, how do they navigate this sort of terrain? Because it does seem like there are a lot of booby traps to be able to get there. 
Right. So first thing, the regime is very good at pitting the groups against each other. So like any groups that have sort of natural competition, like let's say Kurds and Azerbaijani Turks both populate West Azerbaijan province, you know, and obviously there's differences over water sources, lands, crime, you know, issues like that. And so the regime really exacerbates this whenever they can. The same between lures and Arabs, between Arabs and Kurds, you know, they also try wherever there's some sort of conflict to exaggerate it. And I think right now you see the regime appealing to many of the opposition forces in Iran and abroad. And I wouldn't say hinting to them, actually, you know, saying to them, hey, you either, if the regime collapses, this creates an opportunity for Iran to lose territory. And so you should be careful, maybe work with us, you know, make some changes, make some reforms versus, you know, sort of bringing the regime collapsing because that could create an opportunity for some of these ethnic groups to go their own way or at least to try. I think, by the way, their argument is legitimate. And I mean, I think in the sense that, yeah, that just like the collapse of the Soviet Union, many groups that weren't really thinking about independence or working for it the minute the opportunity was there, they took it wholehandedly. So I think that every time in the 20th century, when we've seen a weakening of Tehran and its control, we've seen the provinces rise up and try to get independence or autonomy. So I think it is a real threat. On the other hand, most of the opposition groups aren't dealing practically with the issue, because what they keep saying is, okay, these minority groups just need to keep their head down, be quiet. And, you know, because if they ask for rights, this is going to lead to conflict between the groups. It's going to lead to, you know, something they say, Syrianization, Yugoslavization of Iran. On the other hand, they're not willing to offer a dialogue about rights, about, you know, schools, about cultural rights. So, you know, they want to prevent the instability and the potential loss of territory, but not at the price of changing the policies on the schools. Like I found, I've interviewed many opposition figures that, you know, really only except for the extreme leftists, really no one's willing to allow the ethnic minorities language rights. So you could say, well, a lot of countries don't have schools for their minorities or their immigrants and their native languages, but I don't think you have anything similar to where there's these kind of numbers where, you know, Persians are such a, you know, minority in their own, you know, in the own country that they dominate, where there's no language rights. Certainly, and even Shireen Abadi, the Nobel Prize winner for human rights, has talked about this too. You can't have a democracy at the same time oppress the ethnic minorities. At some point, a new Iran is going to have to deal with this question. I think it also affects sort of the extent of the anti-regime activity, because Many groups that have been very active and many of their, you know, young people have gotten killed over the years, like the Arabs, to a certain extent, the Azerbaijanis, I think they're not coming out in full force now against the regime because they're kind of like wait and see if there will be something that could allow them to have language rights, to have cultural rights, and they're willing to fight for it. But I hear this frequently, especially from the Arab groups, that they don't want to trade, you know, one Persian dictator with another Persian dictator. That's not what they're looking for. So on the point you just made, on the balkanization analogy that you just made. In the American mind, obviously, we long heard that, oh, if you got rid of Saddam, then the country would fall apart. If you get rid of Assad, the country would fall apart. It is a you know, multi-ethnic country that is held together by a strongman, quite brutal in all those things. That's actually not a trope that we hear very often when it comes to the Islamic Republic, or at least here in the West. Do you think that's legitimate that if, if and when the regime collapses or is no longer, do you think that the country would be riven by ethno-civil war or, or that it might kind of fall apart? 
That's a really interesting observation of yours because you're right. The trope is where it didn't happen and actually where there's no trope about where it probably highly likely. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of most Persians are not open to the idea of ethnic rights, certainly for schools, for the ethnic minorities. And I think, you know, basically in scholarship about Iran, media about Iran, this issue is completely overlooked. It's sort of like if we don't write about it, somehow it will go away. So I think there isn't a huge knowledge, you know, on this issue. I never hear about, you know, congressional hearings when they talk about human rights, they talk about women, they talk about secular people, but they never talk about ethnic minorities. It seems that it isn't really much in this issue and the awareness and it should be more to understand Iran. And in fact, even as you recall in the chapter on demography, you know, for many people, when they want to look at what is the ethnic composition of Iran, they look at very old versions of the CIA fact book, which used to report on ethnic minorities, but it stopped reporting, evidently not feeling confident with the numbers, but still people went back to those old CIA numbers as if that's a fact, you know, as if it's a correct information. So even the CIA itself and its world fact book doesn't report the numbers of the ethnic minorities because I, you know, a sense that they don't know, they don't feel confident, you know, with these numbers. Numbers. And yeah, I think many of Iran's neighbors, you know, don't want to see a breakup of Iran. And, you know, I think that's, you know, also an issue. But I mean, we have to actually relook at these policies. And why it was always, you know, that Iraq has to stay together, Syria has to stay together, Iran has to stay together. I mean, we never imposed this on the Soviet Union. And certainly if, you know, if the Chinese regime fell in Tibet and the Uyghurs wanted independence, I don't think anyone would say, any policymaker, no, you have to stay, you know, under Beijing's rule or, you know, or the same thing with the Soviet Union. No, no, sorry, Baltic states, you have to stay under Moscow's rule. I don't know why, for some reason in the Middle East, that whatever these borders that were set by basically the British and the French empires, for some reason, these borders have to remain. So, but as, as American policymakers will learn, you know, they get surprised all the time, right? And they'll, you know, they might get surprised again by how important ethnic identity and ethnic politics is in Iran. So I want to turn to a couple questions about how this demography and how the regime interprets it, let's say, what impact that has on the Islamic Republic's external relations or its foreign policy. So many of these ethnic minorities lay in regions that border you know, another state where it is the dominant, let's say, minority, whether that's Azerbaijan, whether that's in Iraq, whether that's the large semi-autonomous Kurdish population, what have you. Does the regime use its foreign policy to try and help cement its control over those ethnic minorities inside? Or is it the inverse, which is its self-perceived need to control in a certain way leads it to pursue a certain foreign policy on the outside? Right. I think both are true and it depends on the period. So I think, you know, the most blatant example, you know, Iran, many think, well, it's guided by Islamic principles and Islamic solidarity with, you know, Muslims. But if you look in many cases around Iran's borders, it supports the non-Muslim group that's oppressing a Muslim group. Like, let's say, for instance, Iran never criticized, you know, Russia during the height of its bombings of Chechnya and maybe close to 100,000 Chechens were killed. You know, you don't hear peeps, you know, out of Iran. Iran supports Armenia and its conflict against Azerbaijan. So here you have a Christian majority nation that invaded 
a Shiite Muslim majority country, created a million refugees, you know, even put, you know, pigs and cows and mosques, destroyed almost every home under their occupation. And who does Iran support? Armenia. So if you look at this through the lens of Islam, it doesn't make sense to. If you look at it through the lens of ethnicity, it makes 100% sense to, because you say, right, if there was an ethno state next door, like the Republic of Azerbaijan, and it promotes its own language and culture, and people go back and forth, and they go visit, and they see, hey, in, in Iran, I can't use my language, but in Baku, I can go and go to theater, you know, in poetry readings in our language. Clearly, this is a potential threat um, to Iran to raise ethnic awareness, you know. And so from the beginning, from, you know, really, I remember Tehran times on the day the Soviet Union collapsed, instead of celebrating an opportunity to export Islam and reach the Muslims of Azerbaijan and Central Asia and the North Caucasus, they were actually, you know, very honest that they were very fearful that this ethnic nationalism that rose up on the ashes of the Soviet Union will come over its borders from Turkmenistan, from Azerbaijan. So I think that they've always been quite real politic. I mean, in general, Iranian foreign policy is very real politic that it doesn't support Muslims unless it gets something out of it or unless at least it's cost-free. But in the case where it potentially could hurt the security of Iran, they choose, you know, let's say like Christian Armenia over the, you know, Muslim Shia refugees. So I think it's a very good lens to understand how, in a sense, flexible an ideology the regime is. How does that play out internally? I mean, the scenes you're talking about of the Armenia-Azerbaijani war of, of two years ago, a little over two years ago, if the Islamic Republic is supporting, like you said, Christian Armenia against not just Muslim, but Shiite Muslim Azerbaijan, what do the Azerbaijanis inside Iran, what do they see from that? What do they understand? Are any of the protests that we've seen over the last two and a half months or so, are they impacted or related by some of these kind of, as you said, realpolitik, geopolitical approaches? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think the Armenia-Azerbaijan 2020 war was a watershed for the Azerbaijanis in Iran. Because let's say for many that, you know, yeah, they had their sort of home culture and maybe watch Turkish films or something. But, you know, they live in Iran. They felt Iranian. But then when they were seeing actually arms, you know, most of the arms from Russia to Armenia, because they don't share a land border, were going through Iran, either by air or by ship and then trucked into Armenia. These trucks went through the Azerbaijani populated provinces of Iran. And when they saw, you know, the reality that their government was sending arms to kill people that, you know, look like them, speak like them, this caused a lot of demonstrations, a lot of anti-regime activity, hundreds of arrests, lashings, you know, torture, you know, people, they also demonstrated in front of the Armenian embassy and the regime, you know, arrested them. So it's like, look so obvious what the regime's, you know, policy is. And in fact, Hundreds, if not thousands of ethnic Azerbaijanis came to the war zone, which was actually Armenia had occupied a big chunk of land that shared a border with Iran. And even though the regime was trying to shoo them away and put up roadblocks as if they broke through it and went and were cheering on the soldiers. You know, there's films of this. I've seen many, many films of it and talked to soldiers who participated in it. So that kind of experience, you know, where essentially the regime you live under is providing weapons to kill your co-ethnics. I think that was a big game changer for the regime, you know, and so it's not, I think that also works into this wave of anti-regime activity because the Azerbaijanis, they're the biggest ethnic minority. Minority. They're about a third of the population. And on one hand, of the non-Persians, they're the most integrated into the regime. You know, they're, you know, probably like the 
bazaar of Tehran is, you know, predominated by ethnic Azerbaijanis. They're relatively to the ethnic minorities. They're, they're wealthy. But precisely because of their standing, if they shift, this will, you know, create a major weakness for the regime. So I really think they're, yeah, ethnic Azerbaijanis in Iran are a true linchpin to understanding the stability of the regime. And which leads to the next question, which is a lot of what you're describing here seems to have been, well, I mean, you'll have to tell me, but likely seems to have been true both at the time of the Shah and could well remain true, you know, the day after, let's say, an Islamic Republic. I mean, there's no question that, you know, the Islamic Republic, its view of the West turned 180 degrees, obviously, on a dime starting in 1978, 1979. But it sounds like if I'm interpreting right, your analysis of how they approach it's sort of their neighbors and their neighbors' neighbors because of the ethnic makeup inside. That's actually something that was not necessarily, you know, invented, let's say, or inaugurated by this regime in particular. Or do you think that under a different regime, actually, this realpolitik of playing against the ethnic minority inside would actually change? Hmm. Well, you know, first thing, ethnic identity being a public question or, you know, a political question, you know, it's only something that starts in the 19th century with the extension of technologies. Like we see this in Europe as well, you know, similar trends that up until mid to late 19th century, depending on the place, you know, people didn't feel their governments. There was no question of which language our schools be in when there were no government schools, right? So most of these like I said, ethnic questions in Iran were not relevant until you know the 20th century, also because of technology, but also because the Shah dynasty put a huge, you know, it created the myth sort of that the um, you know Persian supremacy and that you know all the emphasis was on Persian literature and Persian culture and you know took out any of the sort of Turkic elements of the leadership of the regime. The Islamic Republic was maybe even a bit lighter on this question, at least ideology-wise, than the Shah regime. So they definitely didn't invent it. But, you know, like most regimes or most governments, states, their probably geography is the biggest factor in all their policies, all their challenges, right? So they end up with the same kind of challenges that, you know, the Shah regime had. Like we said, all throughout the 20th century, anytime Tehran was weak, the minorities rose up and tried to get self-rule of different forms. So probably the main thing holding the regime together is coercion. You know, And we see this, for instance, the minorities have a disproportionate number of executions. The minorities have a disproportionate number of incarceration, you know, higher rates. Minority activists abroad, especially in Europe, are gunned down, kidnapped, you know, assassinated all the time by the regime. So if the regime didn't have any ethnic problem and everyone was living together, you know, politically together well, it wouldn't have to arrest all these people, execute them and, you know, assassinate them. So obviously the regime itself assesses that it has a problem. I mean, as always, sometimes there's both truth and falsity to this, but is the regime concerned that some of its neighbors might seek to meddle or get involved with some of the Iranian populations? I mean, the Turks obviously over the years have certainly intervened to, you know, ostensibly protect Turkmen populations here and there. It's something the Azerbaijanis, I think I've read at least sometimes talk about when they do that. Is that a real legitimate fear of the regime's part or is that propaganda or maybe it's a bit of both? Yeah, probably a bit of both, a bit of both. And I think it also changes over time. So yeah, so it definitely the ethnic factor affects the bilateral relations with all its neighbors. So, you know, there's been times that, you know, Iran and Pakistan almost went, I wouldn't say go to war, but, you know, soldiers were battling because Baluch, what the regime would call terrorists, 
you know, others would call activists, you know, had gone over the border into Pakistan and found refuge and kind of blended into the Baluch there. You know, Iranian soldiers have gone over the border and IRGC to arrest Baluch, you know, so have gone into Pakistan, you know, many times over the last couple of decades. With Kurds, you know, sometimes Iran frequently supports the PKK against Turkey, while at the same time it's oppressing its own Kurds and has no problems with that. Iran also especially since this uprising was had a, had a strong, you know, Kurdish element to it. This current uprising, you know, has fired rockets on Iraqi Kurdistan because they see them as, you know, supporting the Kurds in Iran, you know, at, at the same time when they're trying to court their own Kurds to, you know, feel satisfied under the Islamic Republic. So, so certainly it's, you know, and it changes over time. I think the first government in Azerbaijan after the Soviet breakup under President Elchibe was extremely nationalist and had, you know, textbooks that showed, you know, South Azerbaijan, which was, you know, North Iran, certainly that raised their fear factor about a potential support for the Azerbaijanis in Iran. And President Erdogan, when he was at the victory parade in, after the 2020 war, when he was in Baku, he read a poem, Lachin, about divided Azerbaijanis, divided by the Araz River. So, so clearly, sure, all the neighbors are aware of the ethnic politics and at times, you know, support the minorities there. Your book, to me, is something that is meant to be a primer as to how do you better understand these dynamics and doesn't go into as much policy, let's say, recommendations, the United States or others as a consequence of this. But given that we have you, what would you want the U.S. government to do differently taking these dynamics into play? I mean, I generally, even if the U.S. government doesn't say it, we would like to see probably a different regime in Tehran period, one that is much more enlightened, uh, liberal, democratic, and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily take into account some of these factors. So what do you want people to think about in a way that would actually lead us to, whether it's low-hanging fruit or certain bigger things, change in policy? Well, first thing, you know, remove the blind spot. You know, the same way we suddenly got shocked by what happened in Syria and to a certain extent in Yugoslavia, you know, be aware of the potency of ethnic identity in Iran and, you know, also be following this, that this factor into their assessments on what's happening in Iran. I'd love to see, you know, when they have a hearing on human rights issues or different groups or stability of the regime, I would love to see, you know, there's a panel on ethnic minorities. And essentially, at a minimum, this should enter the human rights discourse. I mean, you don't have to be in favor of Iran breaking up to find it's pretty basic that people have a right to use their language and, and educate their children their language. I mean, I think it's something that, you know, should be part of the human rights discourse or, you know, policy connected to Iran, and it's pretty absent. On the other hand, you know, something that's really, you know, people often discuss it as maybe something that's negative, that this, you know, this anti-regime wave doesn't have leadership, it doesn't have clear outside support, you know, it seems like the Biden administration is kind of ambivalent on this whole wave of anti-regime protests, and probably if it, you know, it's, it's maybe embarrassing to continue to negotiate on JCPA with these women and young people getting shot, you know, on a regular basis there, but I think if it could, it would continue and, you know, to close a deal, but I think, you know, this is also part of its strength because it doesn't have clear leadership and any sort of outside connection. It's actually, you know, people have to do it themselves. People, it's not easy to, you know, unravel this. You you can't just decapitate it by arresting a few people or killing a few people or somehow stopping the stream of outside support because there isn't much outside support. So yeah, I think 
Well, it would, sure, it would matter to people, you know, at least in the human rights level, hearing American officials say, yeah, of course, you know, just like Sharina Abadi says, you know, people should have the right to their cultural rights and there shouldn't be this, you know, sort of discrimination against the minorities. I think that would endear people, you know, more towards the United States and, you know, and feel that the U.S. cares about their basic rights. Gotcha. And I, and I wonder if, I mean, you're sort of saying it's in all of the above. It's not a replacing the human rights conversation with some of this. It's adding to it, right? Exactly. So it sounds like that on right. some of those elements, you might even be able to get some of the regional states on board, given their own interests based on what we just talked about. Right, right, right. Brenda's book is out there, available for purchase, and hopefully bringing to a lot of people a much better understanding of a really important yet somehow you know, least discussed topic on a country and a regime that is incredibly important to the United States, frankly. So Brenda, congrats on the book. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting the talk. Thank you for listening to the Hamiltonian podcast. If you enjoyed, please give us a five-star rating. New episodes are released every other Tuesday, available on every major podcasting platform. To make sure you get notified whenever a new episode is released, be sure to subscribe or visit our website, www.alexanderhamiltonsociety.org.